0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number thirty-three of Task Force
1: Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before I get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest, interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So, again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at csHub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at csHub.com. We have a great show for you tonight. As usual, there's a bunch of activity going on in the cybersecurity industry to talk about. I mean. The news is just everywhere. There's so much to go over. There's no way I'm going to get to everything that went over what happened in the last week in just one show. But I'm going to go over as much as I can, give you everything you need to know to get caught up. Um, before I get started on all this breaking news out there from last week, and there's tons of it, tons, huge show last week with the chief security officer of Palo Alto Networks, Rick Howard. I mean, it was great having one of the world's most well-known and well-respected chief security officers from... You know, it's really the one of one of the largest cybersecurity companies in the world, on the show. You know, we talked all kinds of shop about cybersecurity. It was a great show. It's a really no-brainer to listen to. I mean, you know, it's 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 one of those you don't want to miss. So I got a lot of great feedback on, on on last week's show, of course, and especially around Rick's comments around a company's ability to measure cybersecurity risk, which we dedicated the entire second segment of the show to. And I, you know, because I happen to have a personal passion about it, and and it was it was a great talk, and I, I think we really started to dig in uh, here, and, and I think really started to unpack how to quantify and use probabilistic methods to measure cybersecurity risk. It's definitely I de- definitely sunk in, I think, with some of the feedback that I got, and people are really starting to think about what they're doing and how they're doing it, so... Uh, but Rick and I had a lot more to talk about just that. I mean, he gave us insight on a variety of different topics, uh, including the cybersecurity talent crisis, which we talk about here all the time. It was great hearing his thoughts about that and I was able to get his thoughts on uh, the defense and death models and historically how that's you know either evolved or not working <laughs> so to speak. I guess you could uh, got to listen to the show to see what he says, uh, but it was very interesting and then we talked about the cybersecurity kill chain and how you know companies have been implementing the kill chain and if they've been successful at implementing the kill chain or not. Yeah, we spoke a little bit about uh, what automatic security enterprise orchestration <laughs> and a whole bunch of things, man. Point products, partnerships. We talked about the Cybersecurity Threat Alliance and much, much more in last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you can get a chance to listen to it, not to fret. Just find your favorite playback medium, search for Task Force 7 Radio, look for the latest episode, that's episode number 32, named, Who Says We Can't Measure Cybersecurity Risk in Cybersecurity? And the Chief Security Officer of Palo Alto Networks, Rick Howard, appears on the second and third segments of the show. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very old website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So, in all nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed, we're everywhere. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options, folks. Check us out. TF7 Radio playback at your convenience, 24 7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. It's very important to us. So, a crazy week in cybersecurity. I, I, I want to kick off the show to talk a little bit about an article in ZDNet last week by Tom Fremsky, where he wrote an interesting story about IBM. And, you know, IBM, obviously a huge player in the cybersecurity space. They're putting out a warning to the world that the evolution of quantum computing is definitely threatening the most common encryption technologies that we all use today to protect data and preserve our privacy and our freedoms. And so it seems that you know, for, I guess it's good news for some of these people out there, you know, these nut jobs out there who call themselves activists and want to make all the data in the world accessible by everyone might actually be one step closer to getting their wish as the, the, the probable emergence of quantum computing could make our data all less secure. And then in, in, in the end, reveal a lot of your encrypted secrets and expose all of your business data, as well as your, your private information. And so This all, you know, possibly in in just a few years from now, they're saying. And we'll get, you know, we're some time frames here in a second. But I mean, we all know that's going to go by like lightning, right? It just seems like the older I get, the faster time goes by. I mean, it's just fast, right? So the director of IBM Research, Arvind Krishna, says all this could go down and and everything could break bad in just a, a little more than five years from now. So just plainly put, quantum computers will be able to instantly break the encryption of sensitive data protected by today's strongest security and, and, and an important layer of security used by millions of cybersecurity professionals out there, as, regular, as well as the, the regular folks, right? The regular folks use this to protect our data all the time, whether it's their emails or their instant messages and just about everything in digital format will we'll no longer be protected by prying eyes. So having said that, it's really time to start thinking about how we're going to solve this, this threat to our current encryption technologies. Krishna warned that anyone that wants to make sure that their data is protected for longer than 10 years should move to alternative forms of encryption right now, which was you know sort of a call to action. You know, He was speaking at an event at the, the Churchill Club in San Francisco with a panel of other industry professionals when he made these comments. So I feel that quantum computing has been emerging for some time, and many cybersecurity professionals are well aware that you know, major strides are being uh, made in this area in the quantum computing space. But some of the listeners might not be fully aware of quantum computing and what the term means. So I'm going to go over a little bit just to make sure everybody's in tune with the show and understands what we're talking about. So if you want to read about quantum computing, I, I found a decent article. It, it's, uh, it's by Abigail Beal and Matt Reynolds of Wired.com. Uh, it's you know, another shout out to the cybersecurity magazines out there. Uh, they wrote it on uh, February 16th of last year. You can find it um, in Wired about, uh, about quantum computing. So basically, you got a bunch of uber smart people over at IBM. you got super smart people over at Google. And you got a whole bunch of other companies, a small group of companies, really, but, you know, that, who are racing each other to create the next generation of computers. That's what it comes down to. So they're doing this because quantum computing can help us solve some really, really difficult problems, like m- modeling complex chemical processes uh, that our existing computer technology can't even scratch the surface, can't even begin to solve some of these problems. We don't have the speed to do it. So, but but quantum, uh, fu- the, the quantum future, it's not going to come easily. And, and there's no knowing what it will look like when it does arrive. Uh, there's been some forecasting on it, but at the moment, companies and researchers are using a handful of different approaches to try and build the most powerful computers the world has ever seen. So, what, what exactly are we talking about here? Let's, let's, let's break it down. So, quantum computing takes advantage of the strange ability of subatomic particles to exist in more than one state at any time. So, due to the way that the tiniest of particles behave operations can be done much more quickly and use a lot less energy than our classical computers do today so for instance let's just try to unpack this for a moment and i promise you this is the most technical we'll ever get out of this show and it'll only be for a minute or so i try to stay away from it. i don't want to go to a rabbit hole and lose a whole bunch of uh, my audience Uh, i know some of the audience and get real technical they start zoning out and it's it's not why people listen to this show but, but we have to talk about it a little bit just to kind of unpack this a little bit. So here it is in just a few short sentences, right? So in, in classical computing, a bit is a single piece of information that can exist in two states. It's a one or a zero. It's a one or a zero. And it's, bi- it's, it's a binary digital world that we operate in right now. And anybody who's ever done forensics and anything like I have knows very well this, this binary world that we live in, in ones and zeros. And quantum computing, however, uses quantum bits or qubits instead of this typical binary digital world. So these are quantum systems with two states. However, unlike a usual bit, they can store much more information than just a one or a zero because they can exist in any superposition of these values, right? So Alexey Fodorov, he's a a physicist at the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, said this he said the difference between classical bits and qubits is that we can also prepare qubits in a quantum superposition of zero and one and create non trivial correlated states of a number of bits so-called entangled states so a qubit can be thought of like an imaginary sphere right so you have this sphere and you have this imaginary sphere whereas a classical bit can be in two states at at either of the two poles of the sphere so you got the sphere. You got this imaginary, you know, at the end of the two poles. You got this the sphere. But a qubit can be at any point on the sphere. Right. So this means that a computer using these bits can store a huge, 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 much more uh, larger amount of, of information using a lot less energy than a classical computer. Right. All right. All right. So let's let's cut to the bullshit. All right. So what does all this mean? Let me give it to you in English, all right? A quantum computer is just really freaking fast, man. It's just fast. It's, and it can calculate processes and algorithms and just about anything much, much faster than the computers that we use today. So just think of it this way. It's like comparing horseback transportation to like the new Dodge Challenger SRT Demon, right? Which is the fastest production car in the market. I've been looking at this thing nonstop, man. I want to get one of these bad boys. I mean, they are. I mean, it's just badass. Badass car. Um, I love that car. So... Quantum computers operate on completely different principles to existing computers, right? Which makes them really well suited to solving particular mathematical problems, like finding very large prime numbers. So, since prime numbers are a very important part of cryptography, it's likely that quantum computers would quickly be able to crack many of the systems that help to keep all of our information secure. So, because of these risks, researchers are already trying to develop technology that is resistant. To quantum hacking, which is good, right? And on the flip side of that, it's possible that quantum-based cryptographic systems would be much more secure than their conventional analogs. So researchers are very excited about the prospect of using quantum computers to model complicated chemical reactions, you know, a task that conventional supercomputers aren't very good at at all, right? In July of 2016, Google engineers used a quantum device to simulate a hydrogen- Molecule for the first time, and since then, IBM has managed to model the behavior of even more complex molecules so eventually, the researchers hope they 'll be able to use quantum simulations to design entirely new molecules for for use in medicine and this is good this is good for humanity this is going to help solve a lot of problems. but the holy grail for quantum chemists is to be able to model. The Haber-Bosch process—it's a way of artificially producing ammonia that is still relatively inefficient. So, researchers are hoping that if they can use quantum mechanics to work out what's going on inside that reaction, they could discover new ways to make the process much, much more efficient. So, in short, let's just sum it up here: quantum computers are going to solve a lot of problems for us um, near instantaneously. As soon as they, as soon as they you know, hit the market, as soon as they would be used commercially they could help solve us a lot of today's conventional uh, problems which our conventional computers would need billions and billions of years to solve because they're just not fast enough. So let's get back to today's today's encryption and privacy issues. It's it's very unnerving to think that new quantum technologies will make all of our data less secure. So you're probably thinking to yourself well, what what's everybody doing about that? I mean, what's going on? Someone's going to be thinking about this, right? Well, IBM's Krishna said that there's a type of encryption called lattice field that is thought to be resistant to quantum computing attacks. And he says that it is as efficient as our current encryption. So it's, it's not going to cost more. It's not going to cost a, a lot of money, which is, which is great news. So it's going to be cheap and it's going to be, I guess, uh, resistant to quantum computing, possibly, possibly. So Krishna is certain that within five years, there will be a widespread commercial use of quantum computers, he said, but don't wait. He said, begin experimenting right now on what to do. And it seems that is exactly what some people are doing. Thank goodness. So the good news. here's a gentleman by the name of Sean Halgren. He's a professor of computer science. He was selected for the, the, the Vannevar Bush Faculty Fellowship to study quantum computation and cryptography. And according to psu.edu, the goal of the research is about determining whether or not quantum computers can solve lattice problems. So help is on the way, right? So at least we're going to be able to determine if lattice is resistant to quantum computing or not. So Hawkins' research is continuing, and, and, and it, it, well, currently, first of all, it's unknown if quantum computers can solve lattice problems, right? But if they can, then these systems would also be insecure, which is not going to help us at all with the, with the encryption issue. So, how can I explain that while this is a critically important question, it would not be funded by a regular research grant because the problem is way too difficult. So he goes into the complexity of a little bit, and, and, and it's just kind of interesting to talk about because he says, for one thing, if you spend time trying to find a quantum algorithm for these problems, but one does not exist, then you probably end up with no research results. And then second, if, even if there is an algorithm, there are no obvious measurable steps to take towards finding it. And all the straightforward approaches have been tried. But the upside is that if we are successful in finding quantum algorithms for lattice problems, it will be a major breakthrough in our understanding of what quantum computers can solve. And it will also have a large impact on cryptography, which is what we're talking about here. So Hagen said it could take multiple years with very little show, even if the final result is a major breakthrough. Part of the challenge with this area is its interdisciplinary nature. It requires expertise in quantum computation, number theory, theoretical computer science, and cryptography. So the DOD fellowship gives him the unique opportunity to carry out this research. It has a much longer time frame of five years and also does not have milestones like a normal grant does. So it also provides a funding level to put all the pieces in place. So Hawkins is a really smart dude, man. He, he, he joined Penn State in 2007. He received the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers in 2009. So, you know, in other words, my man is wicked smart. And uh, I, I'm, for one, I am rooting for him. I am rooting for him. Let's hope he finds that Lattice Field technology can withstand quantum computing attacks. Because if he can't, I'm not sure what we're going to do. Not sure what we're going to do, folks. So I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information about this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk about the National Security Council delaying publication of a national cybersecurity strategy over the inclusion of offensive measures... In the document. And President Donald Trump eliminates the cyber czar position as part of the National Security Council. What is going on? Stay tuned to find out. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio,
2: the voice of cybersecurity. (laughs)
0: Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check
2: your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
1: Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. And I'm getting a lot of inquiries about the show lately, and so if you have any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests as well as any other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. So according to an article written by Chris Bing of scoop.com, a public summary of the Trump administration's cyber deterrence strategy has been delayed because of internal disputes over retaliatory hacking measures. So this is interesting. This is always a hot topic and it's something that we talk about a lot on this show, because unlike the physical world, the law in the United States does not allow individuals and companies to take action against another individual or company to defend themselves in a computer attack. So you're walking down the street. Here's the example of the, what usually happens in the physical world. In the kinetic world, you're, you're walking down the street and someone attacks you, tries to take your wallet. you get mugged, right? In most states... You're allowed to use reasonable amount of force to protect yourself. In other words, you're allowed to physically attack the other person using force that's reasonable and that's outlined in the self-defense statutes of that state. And You can't go nuts uh, and hurt somebody really bad or anything like that, but you can use enough force to protect yourself, your life, and your property and other persons too. So, but that's not true with cybersecurity attacks. In, in, uh, another, another computer attacks, your computer... Right, so some other computer attacks your computer. You can try to harden up your defenses, but you can't attack the other computer with an intention to try to stop the attack, like, like you do in the physical world, right? Basically, you're just a punching bag in, in in the in the logical world, right? In the digital world. So there's a federal criminal statute. It's Title 18, USC 1030, and that's a computer crime statute that specifically says you cannot attack another computer no matter what. And there is no self-defense exceptions or provisions in the statute. As you all know, I'm a a former uh, special agent with the United States Secret Service, and I have a lot of experience with this statute and how it's used, and I've broken it down many times with the United States attorneys on what exactly uh, falls within the statute and what doesn't. So now, relate that all to the national security level of cybersecurity strategies, right? Of course, the United States government can attack a a computer of a foreign nation if those computers threaten the national security of the United States, but it's remained unclear what the parameters of these offensive tactics will be and and what line a foreign nation has to cross to actually trigger the implementation of these offensive tactics. Now, this is something that we've all been complaining about uh, ad nauseum for, for years now in the private sector. There's, there's no real structure here. No one really knows what the rules are. It's sort of like the wild, wild west out there, right? And we, we, we want to get some kind of uniformity across you know, national uh, lines here. So according to sources, several National Security Council staffers are seeking edits that emphasize repercussions if an adversary attacks either the U.S. government or U.S.-based companies in cyberspace. So the strategies outline was supposed to be released last Friday, along with some other government cybersecurity reports, but it was held up after an NSC member requested the postponement of the dissemination of that report. So the summary, although not as comprehensive as the strategy itself, is important because it would broadly inform the public about the government's secret plan of action and signal to adversaries what behaviors cross a red line. And so this is important. We've talked about this on this show a few times in some of the earlier episodes. Uh, We're probably going to have to revisit it soon because this is a very important topic. So originally, the Trump administration mandated the creation of a cyber deterrence framework through the cybersecurity executive order released in May 2017. A classified document that defines response options for when the country comes under cyber attack has already been submitted to Congress. So sources spoke on condition of an anonymity to discuss an ongoing policy debate that's taking place now at the highest levels of the government to get this out there. But here's where it really gets interesting, folks. I mean, according to one of the U.S. officials, broadly speaking, Trump's cyber deterrence plan leans on the government's ability to collaborate with U.S. tech companies in order to combat emerging cyber threats. So the delayed release of the aforementioned summary and other reports – came as a surprise to many of these same private sector partners that are, you know, probably collaborating with the government on how this is going to be framed. So that's us, folks. I mean, in the private sector, that's us. That's that's a lot of people that listen to this show. um, And everyone's sort of sitting around scratching their heads asking, you know, what the heck is going on here? So I I would love to have some clarity around exactly what that statement means and how far it goes and who's involved. And some of the specifics would be nice to talk about. I don't have any. I couldn't find any online. So we're just going to have to wait this week to see what comes out of the news. But several industry groups were planning coordinated press releases on Friday about their own private public cybersecurity efforts to mirror the White House's release of their plan. So, for example, telecom companies were planning to publish a tandem report about shutting down botnets, but that was actually called off. And then, and then some of the other companies held off on releasing their own reports late last week as well, a move which annoyed the private sector after they had taken time to compile information supporting the Trump administration's cybersecurity initiatives. But I wish we all knew exactly who the heck we're talking about here. None of these companies were named by name, and it seems that the, uh, the reporter you know, protected the identities of those companies, but had some information. So, you know, I don't know how, you know, who knows how true all this is. It's just, you know, it's in the news. Um, It's definitely newsworthy, definitely newsworthy, right? So we're going to talk about it. Um, The U.S. Telecom Association didn't respond to any request for comment prior to the publication of the article. But the, the CSDE, a joint trade group comprised of U.S. Telecom and Information Technology industry Council members, published an anti-Botnet guide on Friday that didn't mention the cybersecurity executive order or the U.S. government by name. So who knows if they were involved in the collaboration the framework of this strategy. So this is something that we've been waiting for for a long time. In order for us to properly protect critical infrastructure in the United States, the government and the private sector have to work closely together in order for us to have an effective, viable strategy that protects our way of life because that's what it comes down to. It comes down to protecting our way of life. You know, make no mistake about it. This is one of the, the, the highest priorities and the biggest threats that we have to our national security. So there's no other way around this. Extensive collaboration is imperative to successful uh, a, a successful, comprehensive national strategy uh, that put us on the path to protecting ourselves. So with the recent departure of the White House cybersecurity coordinator, Rob Joyce, and Homeland Security advisor, Thomas Bosart... Bosser, excuse me, the White House lost its two most prominent figures. And they were the ones who were actually fostering the relationships with the private sector on a lot of cybersecurity matters. And of course, this didn't really go unnoticed by anyone. Uh, everyone noticed these things because uh, these are the people that the private sector looks up to that hopefully, you know, are, are soundingly alarmed from the, from the rooftops uh, at the highest levels of the government. So Politico reported last Monday that the White House had been planning to publicize several different cybersecurity reports on Friday, but that plan was scrapped by National Security Advisor John Bolton's deputy, Mira Ricardel. Sorry if I mispronounced that. I I, I apologize. I get bad with names sometimes. At the specific request of NSC staffer Joshua Steinman. So the cyber determined strategy summary was going to be one of those publicized documents. The idea was to release multiple related cybersecurity reports, some even detailing the progress made by federal agencies to improve their own cybersecurity practices for the one-year anniversary of the cybersecurity executive order that came out in May of 2017 that I mentioned before. So Steinman, according to Politico, lobbied against Friday's comprehensive rollout to sort of stick it to Joyce on his last day at the White House. So they're, they're alleging some politics here some political posturing. And CyberScoop first reported that Steinman had been disparaging Joyce's work in front of Bolton, an attempt to succeed Joyce, taking over the top cybersecurity policy job in the government. The NSC referred CyberScoop to the State Department regarding the Deterrence strategy summary. The State Department did not respond to a request for comment prior to the publication of the article, and the Secretary of State is usually one of the people that are supposed to be involved in crafting the deterrence strategy, according to the cybersecurity executive order. So in past years, the government has released limited information about classified cybersecurity policies in order to educate the public. And they used this for an example. They said in 2014, former White House cybersecurity coordinator Michael Daniel wrote a blog post explaining the existence and basis behind the vulnerability equities process, although it was secret at the time. Daniel's blog explained how government agencies involved in offensive cyber operations like the NSA and the CIA were supposed to follow guidelines whenever they discovered or implemented so-called, quote-unquote, zero-day vulnerabilities. So with the recent departure of White House cybersecurity coordinator Rob Joyce and Homeland Security advisor Thomas Bossert, the White House lost its two most prominent figures, that we're actively fostering relationships with the private sector on cybersecurity matters. And again, you can see why some private sector people are a little upset at this. So as, as if all this drama was not enough, there's an article by Daniel Arkin came out on NBC News, and it, it was reported last week at almost every major news medium I saw. and I'm just taking Daniel's article uh, to use for this uh, report that he reported last week that President Donald Trump made a decision to eliminate the cybersecurity star position in his his administration. And that decision seems to have private sector professionals across the country even more tweaked, right? So you you see the sequence of events here, the lack of information coming from the government about the basis and reason for these decisions, in my opinion, is causing some of the chaos, some of the doubt, and ultimately some of the criticism that's coming out. So you got to understand, from the viewpoint of many cybersecurity professionals, you have all kinds of cyber threats that we need to coordinate with the government on protecting ourselves against. We just went over how important cooperation was and collaboration was in our national security strategy. I mean, we're dealing with election meddling. We're dealing with corporate esp- espionage, ransomware attacks, massive data breaches. We've got a lot of problems in this country and that need to be addressed. And it's not getting any better. Obviously, it's getting worse. We know the threat is just getting more complicated. Uh, it's getting more sophisticated, more aggressive, and they're becoming more agile every day. And now the cybersecurity champion of the administration, the cyber czar, is no longer. So people are kind of you know, shaking their heads going, what's going on? Folks are wondering who their advocate's going to be in the administration. So that, that is among the reasons why many experts are alarmed uh, by the White House basically eliminating the position of the cybersecurity czar and the National Security Council, or it's the NSC, as, as commonly referred to on TV and in news. That happened last Tuesday. So You know, John Bolton, President Donald Trump's new national security advisor, has been widely reported to have sought to cut the job, sort of uh, advocating that job no longer exists and lobbying for that to happen. So what happens in this situation? Uh, Professionals start chiming in. People start chiming in. So J. Michael Daniel, who served as the cybersecurity coordinator under President Barack Obama, and now leads the Cyber Threat Alliance. This is the nonprofit group formed by cybersecurity companies that Rick Howard spoke about on last week's episode of the show. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. I promise you, you're going to like it. But he said, Daniel said, that this is definitely not the signal you want to send to your allies and to your adversaries. And I, and I get that. But, you know, also, according to Megan Rice a national security fellow with the R Street Institute, which is an, it's just a non-profit public policy research organization. The Departments of Defense and Homeland Security will surely continue to stay on top of cyber threats, but the U.S. government has apparently lost the person who can aggregate them for the president and his staff. And that's, that's a good point. I guess the question is, how are they going to do that from now on? And that hasn't been communicated to anybody. That's what's sort of causing the confusion in my mind. So basically what... Rice is saying, is that the West Wing might fail to see the big picture around what the director of national intelligence considers the number one global threat in the, in, to the United States. I mean, Russia, China, North Korea, I mean, come on, Iran, not to mention terrorist groups, rogue criminals, criminal, criminal organizations, they could just exploit the apparent disorganization and target the U.S. Now, my personal opinion is that statement assumes that there is disorganization in the administration, right? We don't know what the plan is. They haven't communicated that to us. And to think that somehow we're more vulnerable as a nation right now, this instant than we were yesterday, is a little bit of a stretch, okay? Let's, let's, let's be real, right? I mean, just because they haven't communicated the management structure they intend to use with the public doesn't mean that there isn't one. I mean, do you think that John Bolton, a security professional with years of experience in the government, recommended the elimination of the cyber czar position without having an alternate plan? And recommendation to the president? I mean, come on. No, I I do not think that happened. But the article goes on to say that if we entered into a conflict with foreign powers and they wanted to cause damage to us, they could go after our critical infrastructures like our power grids and and so on and so forth. And and look, we all know that. I mean, cars, transportation, uh, biochem, nuclear plants. I mean, we get it, right? I mean, this is something we talk about all the time. But they're sort of trying to, you know, I, I guess get their point across in terms of how important the position is. Of course, the position is important in terms of the fact that, yeah, everybody was pretty happy that we had somebody at the top of the chain here making sure that everybody in the NSC was on board and, and communicating all of our. our our uh, our issues, whether it's Russian election interferences or, or Chinese espionage issues, uh, North Korean attacks, uh, and, and issues that we've had recently with WannaCry and and a bunch of other you know Sony Pictures that was involved, uh, you know we, the terrorists and criminals that are attacking us. Whether it's ISIS and using propaganda tools and other ransomware attacks, I mean there's a bunch of different issues here that you know obviously outline how important that position is, and I think a lot of the people on this show understand that. We're not going to go over that you know uh, in detail, but everybody understands uh, how important it is. So to my point, you know Michael Daniel, the former cybersecurity coordinator under Obama, as I quoted before, uh, he said that. There's nothing sacred or holy about the role and that it is Bolton's prerogative to restructure the National Security Council, which I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that statement. All right. And that's a little level setting here. It's a little calm down with the hysteria. But let's see what's going to happen first before we really launch too much criticism. Right. So a memo circulated by an aide to Bolton said the position was no longer necessary because lower level officials had already made cybersecurity concerns a core function of Trump's national security team. This, according to The New York Times. So the New York Times coming out saying that, hey, look, you know, these guys have got it under control. There's no reason for this top position because it's sort of become part of the culture already. So it's embedded in the culture. They know how important it is. They know how critical it is to our national security and they're doing what needs to get done. However, Daniels did add that the way that this really was framed runs the risk of sending the signal that at least at the White House level, they're not considering this issue to be as important, which I guess Yeah, you could see it that way, right? I mean, you can definitely see it that way. Maybe it could have been handled a little bit differently. Could have been handled a little bit better, put everybody a little at ease, instead of some of the paranoia that it's it's causing. But anyone who doesn't think that the administration appreciates the cybersecurity risk we face as a nation, I think might be just a little politically skewed. (laughs) We have to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back after these short messages to talk about an FBI report that says cyber fraud losses exceed $1.4 billion. And Kevin Mitnick, one of the most popular hackers in the world, gives us a display on how to bypass two-factor authentication and Facebook in the news once again. Don't go away, folks. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: Account takeover is the fastest-growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for
2: free at spycloud.com.
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at TaskForce7Radio.com. Again, that's Task force 7 with the number 7, Radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7
1: Radio. So an article in Liferst on May 11th last week reported that the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, we usually call it the IC3, saw over 300,000 consumers report cyber fraud and malware attacks in 2017 with losses that exceeded an estimated whopping 1.4 billion dollars. Now when I see that kind of number folks, you got to wonder where all that money's going. Where is that money going? And and out of that $1.4 billion, I'm certain that at least some of it, some portion of that money is going towards anti-American interests. So they're stealing the money from us, and they're using our money to fund terrorist operations and criminal operations and operations that go against anti-Western interests. That's what they're doing. So, know that, that this is important stuff that we're talking about here right now. So, according to the yearly FBI Internet Crime Report, the top threats include well established trends like phishing and ransomware and whaling, alongside new attack vectors and tech support fraud, non payment scams, and even straightforward, right up in your face, extortion. Right? So, a bulk of the complaints stem from business email compromises, also known as whaling. So, a total of 15,690 individuals were affected, accounting to losses over $875 million. A whaling scenario typically sees criminals purporting to be senior company executives and requesting wire transfers by demanding a change in account information to siphon money into their own accounts. So, other forms include requests for personal identifiable information or W-2 form data for employees in the real estate sector in particular was very heavily targeted in 2017, according to this FBI report. Meanwhile, the number of reported ransomware infections has gone down in 2017. The FBI received a total of 1,783 complaints, down from the 2,673 complaints received in 2016. Now, this is, a, is, this is good news, but I, we have to figure out what we're doing right to avoid that and try to leverage and scale that across the sector. So it would have been nice to see you know, it's down because of you know, what the root cause analysis is, so people can continue to do more and more and more of that. So as a result, ransomware is the 24th most reported cybercrime in the United States, with damages costing victims a total of $2.3 million. But the statement also reinforces something that we've been talking a lot about this show. We've gone over it a few times. The FBI does not support paying a ransom to the adversary. And the adversary is obviously the bad guys. Don't pay ransom to the bad guys. That's what the FBI says. Paying a ransom does not guarantee an organization will regain access to their data. In fact, some individuals' organizations were never provided with decryption keys after having paid a ransom. So the agency said, On the record, in an article last year, and they're reemphasizing that again today. So, of note, the FBI also received 14,938 complaints of extortion with adjusted losses of just over $15 million last year. And older Americans are the most targeted demographic, with with nearly 50,000 complaints coming from the victims uh, over the age of 60 who suffered losses of nearly $350 million. And I mean, this is truly disgusting disgusting, folks. I mean, if this doesn't upset you, I don't know what does. I mean, these crimes are despicable to begin with, but preying on elderly people and taking the only money they have, you know, they have no income, they're often retired, they need this money to survive, and, and then they're being, you know, wiped out by these criminals who are just ruthless people. I mean, it's just horrible, right? So we got we to figure out a way to help them and help them protect themselves. So this is a good time to talk about ATOs, right? Account takeover Attacks, Right. And we, we just we just got done talking about cyber crime and how criminals are, are raking it in at the expense of the American consumer. And these types of attacks have become extremely lucrative for cyber organized crime groups. And, and, and no one and I mean, no one is exempt from these types of attacks. This can happen to anybody. You know, cyber criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain by pilfering financial or personal identifiable information. Commonly referred to as PII in the cybersecurity industry, directly they do it directly, or they go ahead and they sell it. They sell it. They sell the access to uh, and the access to these accounts that they get to underground markets, and it goes for a price. And it goes for a price in the underground markets, and these other people, they're the ones who do the attacks on the consumer, and then the average consumer has no idea that this underground even exists. Most people, they just have no idea. If they saw, for, if they had you know eyes on glass and saw what's going on, they'd be horrified horrified of the, the crime and, and, and of all types that the financial and computer crime that's going on on a daily basis, 24-7, 365. So many times, phishing attacks, you know, the, the attacks when someone sends you an email that looks like, it looks like it's, it's from someone you know, but it really isn't, right? It's really from a bad guy trying to get you to click on the link to install malware in your systems or, or get you to input your email or bank credentials so they could steal them and, and, and do some damage. Well, there's a company out there fighting the good fight. Against this type of of crime, SpyCloud is the cybersecurity company that helps you automate customer ATO prevention. That's right, SpyCloud, and you probably heard them. Uh, you probably heard their commercial on the show. You know they sponsor the show. And I, look, I just don't take anyone as sponsors of the show, folks. They just like the guests that appear on this show. Our sponsors have to be the real deal, and the professionals at SpyCloud, they're the real deal. Their solution is sophisticated but simple at the same time. It works this way. SpyCloud allows you to implement an easy-to-use API into your current application to identify when your user's credentials have been exposed in the underground. So when a user's email and password combination matches a previous exposure in their database, your company's system can reset their password proactively, thereby averting a successful ATO attack on your consumer and on your employee. So the SpyCloud solution helps companies combat new account fraud. It's a loss of revenue, brand damage, spam, all kinds of things. Because it's proactive cybersecurity, folks, it's proactive, it's aggressive, uh, and it's a, it's a good model. I mean, so you see, SpyCloud helps businesses prevent account takeovers by proactively alerting your security or fraud team when an employee or company asset has been compromised. So if an employee's credentials are exposed... If force a password reset can be automatically initiated, and the account can be monitored for suspicious behavior, so with cyber fraud and account takeover skyrocketing, like we just spoke about, how valuable would this prevention service be to you and your company? I, I'd say pretty, pretty valuable, right? So a- automation's the key here, as in anything in business these days, right? So SpyCloud's Active Directory tool runs continuously based on the schedule that you specify. The tool automatically compares new stolen credentials to your active employees and forces that password resets when passwords have been compromised. It forces it to happen so it gets done in a way before the crime actually takes place. So the tool is an exact match technology. It eliminates a lot of false positives. It eliminates a lot of help desk calls that, that raise costs dramatically. And that's what people in business are trying to do these days, right? Um, they're trying to eliminate all this, these administrative costs and get to the bottom line and the value of these types of technologies. So this is what I encourage you to do. Go to www.spycloud.com slash tf7. That's www.spycloud.com slash tf7 to check your exposure on your email credentials. So when you go to spycloud.com slash tf7, you don't have to be a business to do this, folks. I mean, this is for anyone listening to Task Force 7 radio. This is for all Task Force 7 radio listeners. Go to spycloud.com slash TaskForce 7 or I'm sorry, spycloud.com slash tf7, and put your email address into the box to see if your credentials have been compromised in the cybersecurity underground. It's, it's completely free of charge. It doesn't cost you anything. That's right. It's all right. It's completely free. It's totally free for Task Force 7 radio listeners. I did it. I did it for all my email addresses. And i got to tell you, the results were pretty interesting. So that's, that's www.spycloud.com slash TF7. Enter your email address in the box and click check your exposure to see if your email credentials have been compromised in the cybersecurity underground. So John Gibbs of TechCrunch just did an article on May 10th that reported on Kevin Mitnick's new video illustrating how to compromise two-factor authentication. So a new exploit allows hackers uh, to spoof two-factor authentication requests by sending a user to a fake login page and then stealing the username, password, and session cookie. Wow, that sounds pretty familiar, right? I think we just talked a little bit about that. So Chief Hacking Officer Kevin Mitnick showed the hack in a public video. And by convincing a victim to visit a typo-squatting domain like Lunkedin.com, so you, you, obviously you have LinkedIn.com. this is spelled L-U-N-K instead of L-I-N-K and LinkedIn, that's at LinkedIn.com, and capturing the login, password, and authentication code, the hacker can pass the credentials to the actual site and capture the session cookie. And once this is done, the hacker can log in indefinitely. Right? This essentially uses the one-time two-factor authentication code as a way to spoof a login and grab your data. Right? SpyCloud.com slash TF7, folks. I'm telling you, check it out. You got nothing to lose. So Stu Sojourman, <laughs> I just slayed that last name. I'm sorry, it's a really difficult name to pronounce. Um, he's the he's the he's the 4 CEO. It's a it's, it's the company's called no 4 and he stated that a, a white hat hacker friend of Kevin's developed a tool to bypass two factor authentication using social engineering tactics and it could be weaponized for any site. So two-factor authentication is intended to be an extra layer of security, but in this instance, we clearly see that you can't rely on it alone to protect your organization. So Shu Jorman <laughs> notes that anti-phishing education is deeply important and that a hack like this is impossible to compete if the victim is savvy about security and the dangers of clicking links that come into your email box. So. Uh, first, my, my apologies to the CEO of NoBefore 4 for slaying his name, but it's important to note what he just said. Anti-phishing education is deeply important, right? I mean, it's deeply important. And, and a hack like this is, is, is impossible to complete if the victim doesn't go for it, right? Doesn't click on the links that come into your mailbox. That's the key. So that's what we all have to keep pounding and pounding and pounding away religiously, right? So moving on here, and the hits just keep on coming for Facebook. Facebook's in the news again. A new article in eHacking News this week reported that the personal data of more than 3 million people were exposed online for four years by a personality app called My Personality. The app collected the intimate details of Facebook users and could be accessed by anyone on the Internet. Security researchers who designed the app are based at the Psychometric Center, at the University of Cambridge, they uploaded the sensitive data of Facebook users onto a poorly protected website that contains millions of answers to a personality trait questionnaire. So according to information on the Cambridge website, the app collected data from over 6 million volunteers during the period it was active. It created one of the largest social science research databases in history. So this data was anonymized and samples of it were shared with registered academic collaborators around the world through the My Personality Project, resulting in over 45 scientific publications in peer reviewed journals. This according to the Cambridge website. So while Facebook has confirmed that they are investigating the matter and have temporarily suspended My Personality app, if My Personality refuses to cooperate or fails our audit, we will ban it, said Facebook's Vice President of Product Partnerships. So we've run out of time, folks. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up to date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.